0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the
1: show. A David and Goliath legal battle.
2: In a case where farmers around the world are watching very closely. We've heard your story. You're fighting back. You bring us home. Monsanto says farmers' rights don't matter. We gotta keep fighting!
0: Hey, first, can I get your autograph? No. <laughs> million. That's how much you
2: owe. We're going to lose the farm. If you win, no farmer could ever be sued for saving seeds again.
1: You try to fight them on your own, you will lose.
2: They're tearing our community apart.
1: They go after anyone who speaks out against them.
2: I get sued for doing the same thing my family's been doing for hundreds of years. So you did do it on purpose.
1: (laughs) You ready for this, Percy? This is a precedent-setting case. There are thousands of people who want to support you.
2: We're going to the Supreme Court.
1: Is that
0: something your lawyers have advised? I haven't told them yet. And those were scenes from Percy versus Goliath, a dramatic feature based on the true story of corporation domineering agriculture trying to push out the farmers and one Canadian farmer, Percy Schmeiser, who stood up to one of them, namely Monsanto, bent on driving him off his land, and as portrayed by Christopher Walken in the film. Percy took the U.S. corporation all the way to their Supreme Court in connection to their genetically modified seeds being forced on farmers and won. And following quite a trend this year with the Mauritanian, our historic courtroom cases with America on trial. This film and the death penalty trial of World War II Nazi radio broadcaster Axis Sally in that film of the same title. But first, our guest this week on Arts Express, First Nation Canadian actor Adam Beach, talking about two films he's coming out in, Percy vs. Goliath and The Unhealer, A supernatural thriller targeting two issues, white cultural expropriation and exploitation of native traditional medicinal powers and school bullying. Here's Adam Beach.
2: Hello, Prairie. Adam Beach calling.
0: Hi, how are you?
2: Hey, I'm doing good, you son?
0: Okay, and welcome.
2: Ah, thank you. Ooh, hello, Arts Express. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And where are you calling from?
2: I'm living in Las Vegas. Yeah.
0: Okay. You've just come out in Percy vs. Goliath, along with The Unhealer, with Chris Walken, as a real-life Canadian farmer standing up to the Monsanto Corporation. What was it that led you to want to be part of that film?
2: The film Percy um One was working with Christopher Walken again, the director I'm very good friends with. We were shooting in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and that's where I'm from. So that film just kind of represented, you know, kind of my home and where my heart is. And when you realize how much some of these corporations are, are ruining farmers' lives, you you really see things in a different perspective, mm-hmm. you know? Not only a governing system, there's a, a corporate system among it that is that is um trying to uh suck them dry, I guess you would say.
0: And speaking of real life characters, what was both the inspiration and the challenge for you to play Charles Eastman, an activist considered the first Native American author to write U.S. history from the Native American point of view?
2: Mm -hmm. Growing up, the book buried my heart and wounded me really, kinda had me reclaim my identity when I was young. And, And I knew that being in this film, it would you know send that message out of of learning the history of our people but also reclaiming it at the same time because when you look at the history of native peoples there's such a romanticism that we love we appreciate but we encourage people to um educate themselves deeper And use that knowledge to help us reclaim our identity, but also, you know, empower us by nurturing their own knowledge of who we are. There's so much to learn of the different peoples of tribes that are in America and Canada, et cetera.
0: What was it about being part of the Unhealer as an Arizona sheriff that drew you in?
2: Well what was important for me about this project was um, the traditional side of the storytelling. I really liked the storyline of a kid being bullied and I wanted to represent and grab some friends of mine to help with the traditional aspect of it.
0: Now The Unhealer is really two films a mystical thriller about high school bullying, and the other delving into Native American spiritual history and customs, and a problematic relationship with whites surrounding a reservation. What are your thoughts about the combination of these narratives in the film?
2: Well, for myself, I've been adamant about, you know, stopping non-Indians claiming... um, to be and getting hired in films and, um, I'm very much tied into my cultural identity and protecting that. And I find when you look at the non-indigenous, um, when they get involved in, uh, the traditional aspect of things, they usually steal it for a monetary, Value Whether it's artifacts, ceremony lodges, sweat lodges, or, you know, taking their own interpretation of what a Navajo song should be and, you know, how they should dress and, you know, and I think it's needed that we need more cultural advisors, but also we need more Native writers. And, um... Yeah, I find this movie really protects that.
0: And what can you say about filming in Apache Junction and Coon Bluff, Toronto national forest in Arizona?
2: When you go to places like Apache Junction, you realize that there is a landscape like no other in the country, like New York. New York is uh, plain as plain can be the greatest place to shoot, you know? it's iconic. And then you find these little Apache Junction places, and you're like, oh my God, this is so cinematic. And the people there are so friendly and full of life. So we were pretty lucky to be a part of that process of filmmaking with some of the locals.
0: Now, without giving too much away, references made to including in this story female empowerment as well when it comes to superpowers. What is your reaction to that?
2: Yeah, well, I think with female empowerment, one, coming from um, the indigenous side of things, is we're very matriarchal uh, people. So women are are left in high regard to that respect of who they are. I think women are superpowered beings just by bringing a being to life within their body.
0: And please talk about the significance of the title the unhealer.
2: I believe the unhealer is a reflection of of things going bad. The medicine that that the character has picked up is to be used in In a, like a healing of ways, but there's too much that is being taken, so it's working its opposite way of unhealing you. Mm -hmm.
0: And when you were only eight years old, your mother was killed by a drunk driver, and your father drowned only weeks later. How do you feel those early struggles have informed you as both a person and an actor in your life?
2: Well, uh, growing up when my parents died two months apart from each other, my mother was eight months pregnant at the time too. So I lost a sister and you know, that creates a trauma in your life that you have to sift through and find the missing pieces. And in a reality of all, when you start to connect with that trauma, in a healing um in a healing way you become connected to it and it helps you kind of build a um build a strength to kind of pursue and not feel abandoned anymore Mm. not feel angered not feel um such a loss because growing up abandonment was my friend it was almost like I was always trying to sabotage situations so I can feel abandoned and it was comfortable for me and over the years I've learned that that comfort is not really um, a safe place or a, a, a real environment to be in you know compassion comes from loving other people and being connected and it's a whole growth, but you know, that trauma became my friend and it allowed me to really stand up against that that those walls that are presented when you're a minority.
0: And what can you say about what you're up to in two upcoming films, The Power of the Dog with Benedict Cumberbatch and co-starring with Glenn Close, Naomi Harris, and Aquafina in Swan Song.
2: Oh, my God, you've done your research. That's awesome. The Power of the Dog was shot in New Zealand, and it was placed uh, in Montana. Uh, It's a beautiful country, and parts of it looks like Montana. It's ridiculous. But Benedict, he is uh, an amazing person, and his talent as an actor, man, when he goes into that method, Kind of uh, uh, um, structure. He (laughs) is—he's one to really reckon with. Mm -hmm. He plays a real asshole when you—and then when you're working, he's not gonna be there all friendly and all. Mm -hmm. And you kind of just see his inner workings, and he'll give you a look of kind of like, you know, I'm out of character. Was that okay? And I'd give him a thumbs up because you want to help each other and you want to make sure that they're getting the best interpretation of that time and era. And I think a lot of people will like that movie because, you know, it's, it's just... It's one with different family values, I would say. And uh, working with Glenn Close in... Swan Song was one of the most memorable films I'll ever be a part of because it really allows you to look at your life in a perspective of of how much do I love the people around me and what would I do to extend that.
0: Now you once said, I feel I will always have that spirit bear with me, so I will always feel protected. Please elaborate.
2: Uh, In our teachings in the Anishinaabe way, I was given a name which is Ogimau Mako or Makwa. And that name is Leading Bear Man. And over the years I'm to go on my journey and try to understand why Ogimau Makwa is is my connection, which is that bear. Mm. So for me, every time I move um, and further my aspects of knowledge in life, I always feel I'm protected by this being, the bear, and that everything will be all good because the bear in our teachings are of healing and are of courage. So as long as I have the courage, I'll carry that healing.
0: And you've also said of the First Nation people, we're not going anywhere. We are never going to give up our sovereignty. We will always advance and we will always rise above conflict. What can you say about that?
2: If you look at uh, the history of the native peoples you can see before the arrival of 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 settlers that there was a very vibrant rich healthy dynamic culture that a lot of you know america you know has uh gravitated to in regards to um some of the uh uh uh, some of the uh, knowledge that uh, U.S. Congress holds. But um, one of the things I try to let people know is that there is a spirit and a teachings and a, a culture that no matter what they had tried to do, whether it was murder us or whether it was battle us, or whether it was put us in school systems for 200 years to try to erase us from who we are as an identity, language, teaching, songs, dance. And we are still here. We are still striving. We're still moving forward. And in my belief, as long as we connect with those teachings and our ancestry and who we are, as myself and anishinaabe man we will overcome and we will flow and we will be that thread of of knowledge and ceremonies that still exist today without them we are nothing yeah
0: and what are your thoughts about the challenges you and other first nation actors have faced in the film world what progress has been made and where you feel those movies still have to go.
2: Well, I think, you know, when you look into Canada right now, Canada awarded seven uh, um, winners to, Native, to a Native um, film and Native shows, so we're seeing a recognition that is finally starting to happen. There's a lot of work we have to do still, mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of work has to be amongst us to support each other and not, you know, fight like crabs in a bucket at a piece of pie. Um, you know, the whole uh, pretendian um, um, phrase that we've been using to try to stop non-Indigenous taking our roles um, still pers- persist. Uh, today and you know I'm tired of policing that that aspect of trying to get it to stop but you know everybody who I encourage to, to help kind of protect our identity in film you know some of those people have to go to work they have families to feed so they'll go working alongside the so called pretendian And, um, you know, for me, I would never do that. And I would say no for that work. But, you know, everybody has their own perspective. So I've kind of, you know, stepped away from, you know, that whole policing attitude and going to just work.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Adam Beach, for calling into our show.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Okay. Bye.
2: All right. Bye
0: and Percy and Goliath has been released, and The Unhealer is out now this week. And coming up next on Arts Express...
2: Hello, gang. This is Midge, sending you my warmest and fondest wishes tonight out to the
0: American Expeditionary Forces. You will soon be welcomed by a sizable German greeting party. There's a lot of them
1: boys. (laughs) What chance do you have? It's not too late to surrender. There's no reason for we Americans to get mixed up in this mess. I don't want to see your lives wasted from fighting with unbeatable german army i'm only saying these things because i care about you
3: in reality there's no war between germany and america
1: do yourself a favor and be my special guest in germany
0: can radio broadcasters stand trial for what they say on the air and even be hanged for doing so? Apparently, this was not exactly uncommon following World War II, particularly in Britain, and those radio personalities, many of them American, who went on air reporting favorably about Nazi Germany, Italy, and Japan during the war. One such broadcaster, New Yorker Mildred Gillers, whom you just heard, reenacted in the legal drama Axis Sally by actress Meadow Adams, went to Germany prior to World War II to advance her career as an entertainer, and with Nazi leanings herself, was forced by Goebbels and the Third Reich to air shows discouraging the U.S. from entering the war, and then encouraging them to give up. While most of those like her were tried and served prison time, Though some hanged in the U.K., the FBI's Hoover was out for blood and wanted Axis Sally executed. And when they couldn't find a lawyer to touch the case, defending her as a mere formality on her way to the electric chair, the FBI finally prodded New York City lawyer James Laughlin to come on board. Though not such a great idea, ultimately, for the FBI, as Laughlin, played by Al Pacino, was prominent for defending communists and free speech issues. And in our Arts Express screening room, here's a little of Al Pacino from the film, toe-to-toe with the prosecutor in court, promoting those principles regarding Axis Sally, and with an additional reflection on those issues today, while citing Eleanor Roosevelt, Hemingway, Freud, and Plato.
3: fence would have you believe that Miss Gillers was a victim but the evidence suggests otherwise her friends were Nazis her fiance was a Nazi, everyone around her Nazis, she chose to be there, she felt they couldn't lose, she was on the right side and all she cared about was her own ambitions her own selfish fame and as time went on, she realized that she had done Wrong, So much so that when the war was finished, she went by a false name until we finally tracked her down. Now, is that the behavior of an innocent victim or of a lying opportunistic traitor? What she did was unnerved our soldiers and brought aid and comfort to our enemies. As far as the Constitution, that is the definition of treason. I ask you, I I beseech you, find that woman guilty of the heinous crimes that she perpetrated against our great land.
4: No. Okay. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm going to have to apologize for the uh, vague odor in the room that the uh, prosecution left. Uh, Horse manure. It'll go away. I didn't get the laughs I expected. I never do. Anyone who thinks must think of entering this war as they would of suicide. Eleanor Roosevelt said that. Never think that this war, no matter how justified, is not a crime. Never think it's not a crime. And that is Ernest Hemingway. But neither of them are being tried for treason. Why is that? Like Miss Gillers, they have posed our involvement in the war. And like Miss Gillis, they spoke out about it. But unlike Miss Gillis, none of them had a gun to their head. And unlike Miss Gillis, their words were not spoon-fed to them by the Nazis. Miss Gillis is on trial for eight counts of treason for reading from a script she did not write saying words she did not believe in, and being ordered to say these words on penalty of death. And now this prosecution would have her hanged. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Heard that before. That's the First Amendment. Mrs. Roosevelt, Hemingway, and all the others. They said what they said, and our American laws protected them. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you must understand. America is watching. The world is watching us, all of us. If Ms. Gillis is found guilty, freedom of speech may no longer be our right. It'll be a privilege, and a privilege can be revoked at any time, for any reason. But let's be honest right now. Access Sally was not a person. Access Sally was a persona, a character that Ms. Gillis played on a radio show. And here's the long and short of it. Nobody died. Not a single solitary American life was lost because of Miss Gillis' radio broadcast. Not one. That's a fact. On the other hand, many a worried parent, American mothers, fathers, they all got comfort because they were hearing about their son's whereabouts through her radio programs. Millions listened to each and every broadcast every week. Yet this unjustly maligned and accused woman sits here today fighting for her life, even though there's not a single shred of evidence, no evidence, that any of her broadcasts were harmful to this country or they in some way undermined the morale of our fighting soldiers. So, Are you kidding? A boys engaged in the rigors of wars? I'm not paying attention to what Mildred Gillis or Access Sally says over a radio program. Some ridiculous song, did you hear the song, Germany's Beating You or something like that, whatever they were was, was a silly jingle, the slapstick parody. Of course they, they found it ridiculous. They laugh and they mock it and they write home to their folks saying, did you hear what Access Sally said the other day? Ha ha ha. It's a joke. You understand? It's a joke. Of course, she did say things we didn't like. Of course, she did. But that was the persona. That was Access Sally. It wasn't Mildred Gillis. Don't forget, that was a part she was forced to play. Who is really responsible for those words? It was the ugly propaganda machine of the Third Reich, Goebbels and Hitler's words, not Ms. Mildred Gillis, no. Let's just stop for a minute. And let's just take a look at what's really going on here. Millions of lives were lost. Now, I don't know I don't know if you can win a war. That costs so much. I don't know. But I do know that there isn't a person in this room who wasn't affected by this war. Not a person. So what do we do? Some lost friends. Some lost whole families. Relatives, brothers sons my son I read this for you if there is harm then you shall pay life for life an eye for an eye A truth for a tooth. We all know that. We've heard it before. We want justice for this war. We want our enemies to pay dearly for what they took from us. And we're not wrong for wanting this. But we must pause. We must be vigilant. And where we point the finger, the woman who sits in this chair here It's not your enemy. She never was. We cannot let our pain for our loss, our feelings, cloud our judgment, confuse blind justice with blind vengeance. I have to say it. This feels like vengeance. We must not sacrifice this woman. At the holy altar of patriotism, a patriotism which very easily could be covering up a lynch mob. Then the tyranny which we fought against for years will become us. Milton Gillis. We saw her during this whole trial. We know her. We heard her life story. We heard the little things about her, the innuendos, etc. We heard the prosecution hammering away, as he is wont to do. Being alone, without a passport, foreign country, no place to go. In a war zone. A war zone that became our life. What do he do? What happens to someone who has to live through that? Philosophers, psychiatrists from Plato to Freud tell us foremost among our basic human instincts is the reflex to survive. That's what Mildred Gillis did. But that's all she did. Survive. Survive. Let me ask you, what would you have done? Any one of you. Think about it. If you lived in fear, every single moment of every single day, knowing that your life could end with a single bullet to the head, what would you do? Or another? Pick yourself in that situation. Imagine, it. what would you have done with a gun literally to your head? What would you have done? Because if you think for one moment, your choices would have been different than hers. Well, I don't think you'd be breathing right now. I just don't. Access Sally, the persona is over like the war is over. Mildred Gillis, the person, the human being, is still here. The person who managed to beat unthinkable odds to survive is here. Give Miss Gillis her life back, her freedom. She's an American. She always was an American. Let's treat her like one. We're not going to kill this woman because she managed to somehow survive, are we? we going to do that? I don't think so. Well, I hope not. Thank you very much. Rest your own.
0: And Mildred Gillers, alias Axis Sally, the first U.S. woman ever convicted of treason, was spared the electric chair, instead, serving 12 years in prison, converting to Catholicism there, and joining an Ohio convent as a teacher upon her release. And now on Arts Express. What a dump.
4: Hey, what's that from? What a dump.
5: How would I know? Oh, come on. What's it from? You know. Martha.
4: What's it from?
2: What's
5: what from?
4: I just told you. I just did it. What a dump. Huh? What's that from? I have the faintest idea. Dumbbell.
5: And that was Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton in the great director Mike Nichols' film of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. I'm talking today with Mark Harris, author of the new biography, Mike Nichols' A Life. Last week, we talked with Mark about Nichols' theater career, and this time we'll talk about Nichols' extensive and celebrated film career as well. So let's move to film. They ask him to do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf for his very first film. How does that happen?
1: Well, it works out really interestingly in that Elizabeth Taylor is hired to do it, and it's a job that Nichols really goes after. And, and in mm. some ways, it, it, he went after it not because he felt it would be easy, but because he thought, if I want to get my feet wet in movies, it's a play, I know how to direct a play, it's mostly one location, how hard can it be? And and of course, he ends up directing a movie that you know stars the two most famous people in the world and explodes the production code. But, yeah, it was this sort of interesting daisy chain of events where Elizabeth Taylor gets hired, Nichols goes after the job and uses their friendship, which exists by now, to help make the case that he's the right person to direct it. And then uh, Warner Brothers uh, agrees to entrust this incredibly high-profile piece of dramatic writing to this first-time film director because they think that his presence might induce his friend Richard Burton to do it, in which case Uh, the movie really becomes an event. And that uh, is, in fact, what happened. I see. So
5: Burton wasn't on board from the very beginning.
1: No, everyone thinks that Taylor and Burton were uh, a package deal, but they were not. Ah. Well, so he walks into
5: this either with a combination of hubris and naivete. (laughs) I don't know which. I think it's Um, good. Absolutely. But how does he learn to be a film director? because he doesn't have experience
1: on the fly, really. I mean, he admitted that he knew so little about cameras and lenses that just before shooting he had to call his friend Anthony Perkins and say, you know, I want to do a shot of Burton and Taylor coming through the door, but how do I make sure that the door doesn't hit the camera. You know, Anthony Perkins uh, gave him a really good, you know, two or three day tutorial in lenses. We can say there was hubris, but he was also very aware of what he didn't know and what it was important for him to learn. I mean, although there are certain skills he could carry over from theater to movies, uh, working with actors, rehearsing actors, working with costume designers, working with Production designers. The two job categories on a movie for which there really is no equivalent in theater are the cinematographer and the editor. And Uh those became two of his most important relationships. I mean, his editor was a man named Sam Osteen, who, with one exception edited his movies for the first 30 years that that mike was making uh-huh. them. and uh-huh. it, in the early days did way more than edit he was on the set you know advising mike what shots he needed uh he he went through many more different cinematographers some of whom he had good relationships with and some of whom he didn't but particularly in his first few movies he was like a sponge i mean he just learned an unbelievable amount about film technique there's a period in his career where he has a few flops and becomes quite disillusioned and and takes several years off of movie making. And it's not until he comes back in 1982 with Silkwood that he said, for the first time, I was able to kind of discard thinking about all of the grammar of filmmaking because it had finally become second uh-huh. nature to me. But it uh-huh. took that long. And he's he's also
5: very shrewd about the business end of things. How does he avoid the Catholic office's potential uh, negative rating on Virginia Woolf.
1: Right. He, Mike the socialite and Mike the artist coming together sort of in a great internal team-up. He he's he is fired from Virginia Woolf by Jack Warner during post-production. And he talks his way back into the job by telling Jack Warner that he had a secret weapon that would get this very, very controversial movie past the National Catholic Office of Motion Pictures without a rating of condemned or or morally objectionable, which meant that a lot of theaters wouldn't show it. It would be very, very damaging and he said i'm going to ask my friend Jacqueline Kennedy." To go see it. and uh, in the in the room full of uh, bishops, you know this was this was Mike's language. He said, when the movie ends, she will turn to Monsignor what's his name and say what a wonderful movie Jack would have loved it. And, <laughs> and that is apparently exactly what she did. And uh, Nichols oh, later said gosh. he never used a friend that way again, but he did that time.
5: His second film is The Graduate. And you can tell us, please, the great story of why Robert Redford didn't get the Dustin Hoffman part.
2: Hello, darkness,
0: my old friend. I've come to talk with you again.
4: Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. Aren't you? Have you gotten us a room yet? I haven't, no. Do you want to? I'll get undressed now, is that all right? Sure. I mean, should I just stand here?
1: I mean, I don't know what you want me to do. Why don't you watch? Oh, sure. Thank you.
4: Benjamin, are you having an affair with someone?
1: It's funny because when you you say that, a lot of people think, well, why would Robert Redford ever get the Dustin Hoffman part? He's all wrong for The Graduate. But if you read The Graduate, the novel, um, the character is much, much closer to someone like Robert Redford than someone like Dustin Hoffman. It was more a Redford part than a Hoffman part, and it was Nichols who understood that that the core of the character, the appeal of the character, would have to be somewhat different. And Redford really wanted the part, and Nichols said, you're just wrong for it, and this is Nichols' story. And uh, Nichols said to him, you know, for instance, you know, when was the last time you struck out with a woman? And he says Redford's response was, what do you mean? Which is... (laughs) Just kind of he couldn't conceive of striking
5: out with a woman the very concept didn't right, right, register right, right. and um, of
1: course you know the amazing counterintuitive thing to take dustin hoffman who now we think of as you know a movie star but who was not famous at all not known in the least when that movie was made and to put him at the center of a movie like that was a very bold surprising thing to do
5: well, Mike Nichols is not golden. He has some big public flops, uh, Catch Twenty Two, and Carnal Knowledge does generate enough controversy to become a success. But he he doesn't leave the theater. He's still New York City based, which is interesting because he he's getting the big movie money, which uh, you say theater money isn't movie money.
1: Right, uh, Mike did have a you know a period of of. Uh, time when he lived mostly in LA and he had a big horse ranch on the West coast, but he, no, he was a New Yorker. And one of the reasons I was attracted to writing about him was that I think he's the only major director you can say this about Mm -hmm. of his generation. He was not more a movie director than he was a theater director and not more a theater director than he was a film director. He, he maintained parallel 50-year careers with each of which had highs and lows and immense successes and failures but he really he was ambidextrous that way he really did do both
5: mark harris we've got to talk about angels in america of course your husband tony kushner is the author of that play
0: look up look up
2: are you one of those follow me to the other side voices
0: No, I am no Nightbird. I am a messenger.
4: What? AIDS is what homosexuals have. I have liver cancer. You can call it any
5: damn thing you want, Roy. But what it boils down to, you have AIDS. And so I'm imagining that you had a more than usual insight into what Mike Nichols' work on that play was like.
1: Sure. I Yes. The first time I got to know Mike and the first time I got to watch him work was probably around 2001 when he began work on the HBO adaptation of Angels in America. And, you know, this Mike was about 70 at the time, and Angels was a huge undertaking. I mean, it was expensive. Yeah. It was six hours long. It had this massive schedule that meant that Mike was going to be in pre-production or rehearsals which were considerable or shooting it for the better part of an entire year and then was going to spend the better part of a year after that in the editing room pulling it together and so watching him work with Tony and and watching him work with this extraordinary cast that ranged from giants like Al Pacino and Meryl Streep and Emma Thompson to a bunch of newcomers in the younger parts was really an extraordinary privileged glimpse into how he thought as a director. He brought this incredible imagination to how the play should be done that was both cinematic and theatrical.
5: What was he like?
1: Do you have time for a book? Because <laughs> your book, you know, I, I will say that just on a personal level, one thing that surprised me in working on the book was learning just how deep and troubling the struggles of Mike's Mm -hmm. early life and his midlife were, because by the time I got to know him, he was at a remarkably settled, happy Mm -hmm. and generous place in his life. Um, the, The only frustration I think for him being as he got older, that his body and his health would not always let him do everything he wanted to do. Although he worked up until the week he died, you know, in every other regard, the demons that Mike had wrestled with uh, over the decades were pretty much vanquished. And so the the man I met was someone of remarkable warmth and generosity and curiosity and kindness. And uh, that left a lot for me to discover about all of the, the work uh, and all of the experience that had led up to that.
5: And even at 80 years old, he wins a Tony for directing uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Death of a Salesman. But I was struck by something he said, I don't want to get to the end and think I haven't tasted enough and touched other people enough and had a good enough time. And I'm intrigued by the two senses he picks, taste and touch.
1: Taste does not surprise me at all, (laughs) because Mike loved food. He was one of the great epicures of of all time um just a great great delight in the physical pleasure of of eating the best possible things and whenever mike would say to you you know oh i found the best brownie or no nobody makes chicken better than this place you had to listen because he was always right about that um (laughs) and touch you know it's a fascinating thing with Mike. I mean, he once said that there were there were points when he would become depressed and he would have to sleep perhaps 18 hours a day sometimes because uh-huh. of what he described as the sheer effort of having to be a person, meaning a public person, that mm-hmm. many hours a day. So there were ways in which Mike was private and introverted and and mm-hmm. really valued the time when he didn't have to be on stage. But he also really loved people and really loved being with them and, and doing things with them. And, you know, he would fly across the country to see a play by a playwright he liked or, or starring an actress he loved. He would, he would go to the smallest thing in the most hole in the wall theater downtown and, and make a point of, uh, you know, greeting the cast afterwards. Mike loved the world, loved being in the world and loved being of the world. And so that touches in there, and you know what he wanted to do. Yes, he wanted to touch a lot of things and a lot of people, and he did.
5: Mark, as we wrap up, what is a Mike Nichols movie? Is it possible to classify them like Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford? Is it possible to say, "Oh yeah, that's a Mike Nichols movie"?
1: You know, it's funny. Mike was once asked that, and and he sort of shrugged and said, "You know, I think a lot of my work." has to do with a man and a woman, and often it's centered on a bed, but I can't really say anything more specific than that. (laughs) Um, I think Mike's movies will disappoint you if your definition of a great director is someone, all of whose movies seem to fit the same thematic obsession or concern. I don't think that Mm -hmm. his gifts as Mm -hmm. a director were about authorship in a way. I think his gifts were profoundly collaborative collaborative with actors or with uh, writers or uh, with anyone he worked on a movie with. So I would say a Mike Nichols movie is a movie in which everyone seems on their game in the best Mm -hmm. possible way in which little details along the way uh, catch your eye in which the actors seem to be bringing something extra to their performances and to their characterizations in which the writing seems especially sharp in which, There seems to be room for social comedy at at odd little moments in which acute observations are in the background of a scene but don't become the center of it. That kind of attention to detail, that feeling of what is this really like and what happens next, that is the Mike Nichols signature. And I would argue that is as important a directorial signature and as meaningful a directorial signature as the work of any non-collaborative director. Well, that's great. Well, thanks so
5: much, Mark. It's been great speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much.
5: I've been talking with Mark Harris, author of the wonderful new biography of Mike Nichols called Mike Nichols, A Life, published by Penguin Press. Mark is also the author of Pictures at a Revolution and Five Came Back. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
0: And here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Heaven holds a place for those who pray. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, You can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.